All right, you got a Bible? Go to Matthew 25. Matthew 25. You ready to get to work? Let's go. Let's do this. Ready to have some fun? Really? Nobody's ready to have fun this morning? I know better than that. Let's go. Matthew 25 is our text. If you've been with us the last few weeks, we've been looking at some of the parables of Jesus. We've titled the series Illusions because what the parables do is they open our eyes to see reality, to see what is truth. And uh, wow, what a, what a powerful one this morning that Jesus is going to teach us here in Matthew 25. And so if you're able to stand, please do so as we honor the reading of God's Word, Matthew 25, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 13. Scripture says that the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Well, since there's not enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready, those who were ready, went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Let's pray. Father, so thankful for your word. You have not left us without revelation, without truth. Thank you that in your divine grace, you have given us your word that we might understand life and how to live it. But that means that we'll need exposed in our lives a lot of the lies we see around us. So would you help us this morning have clarity, not only in truth, but clarity in how we live. We ask to the glory of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. He stood at the door and knocked, and knocked, but the door didn't open. But that San Francisco Chronicle reporter wasn't about to give up so easily, so he kept knocking and knocking and knocking until finally the door opened ever so slightly and out from behind the door walked an 89-year-old man. You want to make a statement? You have anything you want to say? The reporter asked him. And and that, that older man, he looked so defeated, so puzzled, so bewildered. He just kind of stared at the ground and and all he could say was, I I don't know why. I don't I don't know why. I don't understand why nothing happened. You see, that older man was named Harold Camping the radio evangelist that became very popular a few years ago by his continual prediction that Jesus was going to return. And the day he was interviewed by that reporter was the day after he had predicted Jesus would return, and he was shocked, he was in disbelief, he didn't know what to do. 
And he wasn't the only one. Robert Fitzpatrick, who believed Harold Camping's prediction, sold everything he had in preparation for that day. Adrian Martinez, a 27-year-old woman, also believed the prediction. She dropped out of medical school, sold everything she had as well, and gave it away, and she was eight months pregnant. Others sold their homes, they quit their jobs, all because they believed the end is near. But it turned out to be an illusion. Now, that's not the first time something like that's happened. I mean, my goodness, Jesus was supposed to return in 1948. And then in 1978, a group of pastors got together and said it was going to be 1981. And when that was wrong, they made it 1982. And then, how many of you remember the 1988, 88 reasons why Jesus will return in 88? Which was like, why does it have to be 88 reasons? Can it not be 87 reasons or 89 reasons? And then how many of you remember the Y2K? Oh, the year 2000, that's it. You know, computers are going to explode and Jesus is going to return, you know? We are a people fascinated about the end. And I don't just mean Christians. I mean even non-Christians, even people in the culture. You say, well, why are they fascinated with it? Well, just look at the popular books and movies. Things like Planet of the Apes. That's all about the end of humanity. Or War of Worlds with Tom Cruise or The Day After Tomorrow. I could keep going on and on, you know, Armageddon and Independence Day. And I mean, we are fascinated with how is the world going to end. And Christians are especially fascinated by this because as I've pastored for many years, I know all you have to do is offer a Bible study on the book of Revelation and Christians come out of the walls. I mean, if I told you next week I'm going to be dealing with prophecy and we're going to be talking about when Jesus is going to return, I mean, we could sell tickets. I mean, it would be, I mean, people would be coming from all over because we're fascinated by that kind of stuff. When is it going to end? What's it going to be like? And we're not the first people to ask that question because our parable this morning actually comes out of a question the disciples asked back at the beginning of chapter 24. Look at verse 3. Matthew 24, verse 3, it says, He sat on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? You see, the disciples are interested too. They're like, hey, Jesus, can we get an inside track on how all this is going to end? I mean, after all, you just told us the verse before that this temple that we see, this amazing temple is all coming down. And when a Jewish man heard that, he put on his iPod and turned on REM because it's the end of the world as they know it. They are fast. Like, you got to tell us, how's this going to end? Give me a sign. And Jesus says, hey, 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 just calm down, calm down. There's a series of books called the Left Behind series. It's coming out here in a few hundred years. You just read that and it'll answer every question you have. In fact, they're going to make it a movie and Nicolas Cage will be starring in it in theaters playing now, right? No, that's not what Jesus says. 
Jesus doesn't point them to the Left Behind series. He gives them the real Left Behind series. Namely, four parables about his return. Now, be of good cheer. We're not going to deal with all four of them this morning. I know some of you are sweating. We'll look at one here in Matthew 25, verse 1. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins, or you could put in their bridesmaids, because that's what they are, who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. So Jesus, again, like he does in many occasions, compares the kingdom of heaven to a wedding intentionally. Now, I got to give you a little bit of historical background on this because their weddings were very different than our weddings. So you you can't think like we think in this context. Um, Listen, there were three main stages to a wedding in the ancient Near East here. It was the engagement, the betrothal period, and then the final wedding ceremony. Now, the engagement, I got to be honest with you, a little bit of a warning. If you're into chick flicks or you're like Pastor Terry and you love Christian romance novels, I don't know if you knew that by, about him, but his bookshelf is full of those. That's, I'm going to pay for that. But if you're into this kind of romantic type thing, you're going to be really disappointed with what I'm about to tell you. The engagement was not some romantic scheme, you know, like a ring and a bottle that floats up on shore as the sun is setting and you pop the question, No. A guy who wanted to marry a woman went to her father, not to ask permission, but to put together a contract. And oftentimes, the guy would have to pay money to be able to marry the guy's daughter. Now, I'm not saying there wasn't love involved. Don't misunderstand me at all. I'm just saying it, was, it started with a contract with the father. And as a father of two girls, I kind of like that idea, you know? <laughs> it's like, big bucks, buddy, you're going to marry my daughter. But once that contract was made, then they would enter into a time where they would share vows with one another, they would make a formal commitment, and then the groom would speak a blessing to the bride, and it would go a little something like this. In my father's house are many rooms, and I'm going to go prepare a place for you, and then I will return to take you into myself. That where I am, you will always be. And all God's people said, aw, right? How many of you, that sounds familiar? It does, doesn't it? Jesus quoted that wedding blessing to his own disciples, to the church. Now, after this kind of official commitment has been made, they enter into a time of betrothal. They are separated for about 12 months. That doesn't mean they don't see each other or talk to each other, but he lives in his home while he prepares a place, and she is watching and preparing and waiting and remaining pure for the final wedding day. And then on that day, the groom, when he'd made all of his preparations, he'd get his buddies together, he'd get his family together, and they'd make a processional across town to the bride's home on an unscheduled night. And when they would get there, they would throw a party for two weeks because there ain't no party like a Jewish party because a Jewish party don't stop, right? I mean, two weeks long, they would party, they would celebrate, they would feast. Why? The wedding's here. 
That day that they've been longing for, that they've been anticipating for so long, has finally come. Boy, it was exciting. It was a fantastic time. Now, two more things you need to know about this context. Number one is this, that, and sorry, ladies, don't send me hate email. Don't kill the messenger. The focus of all this was the groom, not the bride. In fact, you even see it in the text, don't you, where it says that here comes the bridegroom. It's not here comes the bride, it's here comes the groom. Now, that's totally different in our context because in our context, the groom is kind of like a bathroom at a sporting event, you know, pardon the analogy. You're really glad one's in the building, but it's not why you bought the ticket, you know? Yeah. I can feel you getting it all the way back. <laughs> and so in our context, it's here comes the bride and she walks down the aisle, and, but, but, not, but not in that context. The context was all about the groom. And I would submit to you, again, no offense, ladies, that spiritually that's still the case. This isn't ultimately about the bride. It is about the groom. And then finally, the bridesmaids, these, these ten virgins, they had one simple job. These were young, unmarried girls. They had one simple job. They would take their lamps, the Greek is really the idea of torches, and they would go out as the time was drawing near, and they would stand watch, and their only job was to wait and watch for the bridegroom to come, join into the processional, and enter into the party with them. That's all they were supposed to do. And two things stick out in this parable. You tracking with me? Number one, the groom is delayed. And number two, half of the bridesmaids are not ready. Okay, so let me tell you what this means, and then we're going to apply it to us. Here's what Jesus is teaching in this parable. He is saying this, the disciples are asking, give me a sign. We want to know when's this going to happen. Tell us how this is all going to end. And Jesus tells a parable to teach them how true disciples live in between the engagement. Remember the historical background? The engagement that is his first coming and the final wedding, namely his second coming. How do true disciples live during this time? Like during right now. How do true Christians, true followers respond? Now, some of you will say, well, wait, I thought the, the church was the bride of Christ. Well, let the parable stand on its own. Don't read into it. The bridesmaids here represent true followers, true disciples during this gap, during this betrothal period, if you will. Five are wise, five are foolish, five get in, five do not. And I can't speak for you, but I want to be a part of the five that get in. So what does Jesus have to say to us? Three things this morning. Number one, I want you to jot these down. Number one, true disciples, what this is teaching us, true disciples are ready anytime. True disciples, true followers of Christ are ready for his return anytime. Listen, listen, listen. We believe Jesus is going to return. One, let me rewind. We believe Jesus is going to return, but we don't know when. We don't know when. In fact, look back to the earlier chapter, chapter 24 and verse 36. 
But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven or the Son, but the Father only. For as were in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus says, nobody knows which in the Greek means nobody knows, translated into English means nobody knows because nobody knows. Like I get so righteously frustrated with people who try to make predictions because it's like what part of nobody knows do you not understand? I mean, even if you got it right with a lucky guess, Jesus would change it just to prove you wrong. Jesus says it's like the days of Noah. They are eating, they are drinking, they are giving in marriage, they're driving to Starbucks, they're going to the Mall of America, they're watching the Vikings, and all of a sudden, flood. So will the coming of the Son of Man. At any point, you could be driving down the interstate and going grocery shopping and taking your kids to the park and return. You don't know when he's coming. No one does. So you have to be ready at any time. Are you following me? I guarantee you there's something in your life before that you knew was coming and it was really important but you didn't take it as seriously as you should have. Case in point in my life, when our third child, Ashlyn, was born, uh, when we found out that we were pregnant, we had nine months to prepare for this. And the night before that she was born, uh, my wife started having contractions, but it's like the third time, so we didn't take it seriously enough. And then we woke up in the morning, and they were really bad, and we were waiting for our friends to come and to watch our older two, and they were running late. Uh, They are still our friends, barely. Um, Listen, when we got to the hospital, Ashlyn was born in less than an hour and a half. Now, some of you, like, have a better story than that, and you're like, wuss, you know, whatever. (laughs) But I'm just going to tell you, for me, I was as nervous as a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs. I mean, (laughs) I, it was chaos. I mean, it was really important, and we knew it was coming, but for whatever reason, we didn't take it as seriously as we should when the signs were there. I bet you've done that. The teacher told you at any time there could be a pop quiz, quiz, but you stayed up playing Madden football. You knew the report was due, but you put it off. You knew the anniversary was next month, and you put it off and paid for that. You knew you should reconcile with the family member and now they're gone. All of us have this tendency, even though we know things are coming that are important, to not treat them as important as they are. Follow me. The bridesmaids knew the groom was coming. They just didn't know when. And so they weren't ready. And true disciples have to be ready any time. What separated the wise from the foolish was their readiness. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, Heaven will be filled with people who believe in Jesus. 
Hell will be filled with people who meant to. Are you ready? And Jesus here shows us what preparation of being ready anytime looks like. And the first is, it's got to be personal. Look at verse 8. The foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy yourselves. In other words, one of the things the bridesmaids thought was, well, even when he comes, well, we'll just borrow oil from somebody else. And so often we think, well, yeah, you know, when Jesus comes, I'll get in with that person or I'll get in with that person. But listen, God does not have grandchildren. He only has children. When Jesus comes, it will not matter that your husband believed. It will not matter that your wife believed. It will not matter that your children believed. It will only matter, do you believe? You will not borrow your way in. Preparation is personal. You must bring your oil what does that mean? You must have your own faith. Not the faith of your father, not the faith of someone else. I read some time ago about a guy, his job, he was a skydiver, and his job was to jump out of planes and take video of other people that were jumping. He was a photographer and, and uh, would take video of people. I'm just how many of you would like that job? Okay, you just stay away from me, all right? That scares me to death. And I don't want to make too light of the story because it's a true story, but uh, you know, this guy did this over and over and over again, and uh, he jumps one time, reaches for his ripcord, and realizes he forgot his parachute. True story. And I just can't even imagine in that moment like that feeling of knowing you forgot the most important thing. And I remember reading that thinking, I'm sure he didn't mean to. Like, I don't think the guy thought, this will be really cool. I'll jump without a parachute. No, he just got so caught up in his routine, he forgot the thing that mattered most. He wasn't personally prepared. Are you? Not only is preparation personal here, you got to bring your own faith, your own oil, if you will, but also preparation has to be punctual. Look at verse 10. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. You see, here's the other thing going on in the mind of the bridesmaids. Well, okay, we got time to run down to the corner market and buy us some oil and get back because after all, how many of you have ever said this, better late than never? But here's the problem when it comes to Jesus' return, late is never. True disciples are ready now. True disciples are ready today. You say, well, yeah, 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 I know it's important, but when I get older, I'll do it, or, or I'll put it off, spoken like five foolish virgins. 
There is no late when it comes to the return of Jesus. It is, are you ready now? The illusion that this exposes is the idea of, hey, I've got plenty of time. This isn't anything I need to be urgent about. You know, I can, li- I mean, I'm young. You know, I'm 25. I'm whatever. I can live my life, and then Jesus will be important to me. And what Jesus would say from this text is, that's not a true disciple. A true disciple is ready now. But not only is a true disciple ready anytime, but number two, true disciples are prepared to wait a long time. Look at verse five. This will preach right here. As the and I'm going to preach it. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. You see? Yeah, you know, he's delayed. It's probably not even going to be tonight. And so we'll just kind of go to sleep, become unfocused, lose our attention on the one responsibility we've been given to do in the whole wedding party, which is to wait and to watch with anticipation and expectation. Now, this is the theme of these parables. In fact, if you look at the parable right before this one in chapter 24, verse 48, Notice what it says. This is a different parable. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is what? Delayed. Now look at the parable right after our parable that we're looking at in chapter 25, verse 19. Now what? After a long time the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And so what's the theme in all these parables? Right here, right here, right here, right here, right here, right here. Jesus may take longer than you think. So true disciples are ready anytime, but true disciples are also preparing themselves to wait a long time. And the difference between the wise and the foolish, are you ready, is faithfulness. Faithfulness. How many of you like to wait for something? Come on, confession, right? Yeah, we're not good waiters. Like, how many of you, you're waiting on your wife to finish shopping? Some of you are like, preach, preach, preach. (laughs) Or you're like, man, I can't wait till I move out of this house. Or you're like, I can't wait till they move out of this house. Or I can't wait for the flight to take off. I can't wait for this sermon to end. Don't you say that. (laughs) Some of us are like this guy waiting at a stop sign. I love it. I love it. Now, if that guy got what he deserved, y'all say amen. Amen. That's right. But man, we're so much like that. Honk, honk, hurry up, let's go. What are you going to do if Jesus takes a little longer? How are you going to live? Give me a sign. Give me a sign. We want to know, Jesus. Come over here privately. We want to know, when's the end of the age going to come? What's it going to be like? You're, You're missing the point. 
Luther was asked, Martin Luther was asked one time, what would you do if you knew Jesus would return tomorrow? He said, I'd plant a tree and pay taxes. That's a really weird quote. You know what he meant? I'm supposed to live every day faithfully. It shouldn't matter whether or not I have a sign. Like I just, we just need to let that land. Because there are people, and, I, and I've talked to you, and I, and I love you, and I hope that you'll still love me after I say what I'm about to say, who would say this? I just believe Jesus is about to return. I just see the signs. I turn on the news, and I see all these things happening, and all these wars. I just believe that any day Jesus is going to return. And my response to you is, you may be right. But everybody for generations has thought that, and that's the point Jesus is making here. What will you do if he doesn't come when you think he's going to? Listen, listen, please hear my heart here. When Jesus speaks of famine and wars and earthquakes and tribulation, he's not giving us an end-time checklist. He's preparing disciples for suffering When he speaks of tribulation, he's not talking about some final tribulation period. He's talking about the tribulation these men will face tomorrow. When he's telling them about uh, the world is like a woman in birth pains, he's preparing men who will be crucified upside down and boiled to death to keep persevering in that suffering because something glorious is about to be born. This is why, again, I get so righteously frustrated with people who take passages like this and want to have prophecy debates or some TV evangelist with a weird hairpiece wants to make money off of it. Jesus here is saying, I'm going to have disciples, some of which are in this room right now, and they're going to fight cancer, and they're going to lose loved ones, and they're going to be disappointed, and they're going to fight depression, and they're going to be persecuted by the world, and they're going to cry out, Jesus, come now. But what will they do when I don't? For he who endures to the end will be saved. True disciples are ready any time, but true disciples are prepared to wait a long time. They will endure the betrothal period because they believe something awesome is coming. Amen? So let me say one more thing. I'll get it off my soapbox. I'm just trying to create more pleasant email. But I'm your pastor, I take that seriously, and so here's my heart. If your response to current events is to run to your prophecy chart instead of getting on your knees in prayer, if you spend more time trying to figure out who the final Antichrist will be instead of trying to defeat the spirit of Antichrist that is alive and well in the Twin Cities, I don't care how many left-behind books you've read. You may already be. Because the disciples are saying, give us a sign. Jesus is saying, give me disciples who don't fall asleep. 
Give me disciples who don't get drowsy and weary and forget the mission I've placed them here to do. That's heavy. I know that's heavy. But I believe with all my heart this is what Jesus is teaching us. So true disciples are ready and they're prepared if it takes longer. Okay, And the illusion you may be under is, well, I just believe that it's going to happen so soon. I'll put off things that could have a tremendous impact on generations that we'll never see. That's, that's my concern. See, true disciples who are prepared to wait a long time, even though they're ready anytime, they do things like disciple new believers and invest in the next generation and, and, and give for missions so that ripple effects will be seen 150 years from now, even though Jesus might come before that, they're going to continue to be faithful anyways. Now, third and final, in case I've offended you, I will totally redeem myself, dumb and dumber. Anybody? Okay. True disciples are ready anytime. True disciples are prepared to wait a long time. And here's the last one. True disciples will be rewarded with a great time. Amen. I'm getting excited, cartwheels. Jesus, like he so often does, compares the kingdom of heaven to a wedding. And again, our weddings, they like last a, a weekend or a day, you know. Weddings in those days were like the, our weddings and Super Bowl parties and 50-year anniversaries and street festivals all wrapped into one. I mean, it was a big-time party. It was awesome, I mean, you wanted to be a part of it. And so I want to end this morning by leaving you with this thought. Just think with me, meditate with me on the fact that there is a day coming and we're going to join with every nation, tribe, and tongue of people who look a lot different than we do and speak differently than we do. And we're going to join with them and we're all going to celebrate in the sweet, beautiful marriage of our groom. And all the suffering of this life, Paul says, will not even be able to compare to the glory that will be revealed to us in Christ Jesus. We will sing a new song in that day, and it will not be, I can only imagine. Because, brother, we won't have to. We will see our Savior face to face. And we will join with his bride from all nations. And what a, what a celebration, what anticipation we will be able to experience. Uh, listen, I, I thought about the idea that imagine that bride in this betrothal period. You know, she knows there's already been that commitment. There's all, everything has already been prepared and he's preparing. And, and that day is going to come when it's all going to be final. Can you imagine what that bride in this parable must have been thinking as the time was close? Maybe today's the day. Maybe, the, maybe today's the day when I'll look out my window and they're walking down the street will be my man. The one I love. Imagine that every morning she woke up and the word she wanted to hear was a shout in the street. The bridegroom comes! She waited for it every day. Do we? The end 
of the age is not meant to be a Bible study topic. It is meant to be the longing of the Christian's heart. Because we love him. And we can't wait to be with him forever and ever. So I asked you, Berean, are you ready? Are you ready? Have you made personal preparation to see Jesus? Namely, have you repented of your sin? Don't tune me out here. Repent of your sin. Believe in Jesus. Surrender your life to him. Love for him. Seek to live for him. Don't say, someday I will. Today. And I ask others of you, are you awake? Could your Christian life be represented as... You're distracted, you've lost focus, there's no fight with sin, there's no communion with Christ, there's no delight in prayer. Jesus says to all of us graciously, wake up. Wake up. I've given you one mission to do, one job to do. Be faithful in that. And lastly, I would ask you, are you watching are you anticipating daily? And, and, and like I want to branch to a whole other sermon, but I'm just going to say one statement. What text like this does to me is it reminds me this second coming of Jesus is real. And I need that wake-up call to be watching and preparing for that day. So if we're not ready, if we're not awake, if we're not preparing if we're finding ourselves way too preoccupied with other things, unprepared for the greatest thing, we might find ourselves like that San Francisco Chronicle reporter and like five foolish bridesmaids standing outside a door, knocking but the door never opens. Let's pray. Father, I don't, I don't know uh, all the work that you need to do in our hearts, but you do. And uh, I know this. We need to be ready. And we need this reminder this morning because often we live in the illusion that there's plenty of time. And so wake us up open our eyes to see, to live as though it's any time, but at the same time be prepared for a long time. So help us. There are areas in our life that we need a wake-up call in. There are others in this room. They just simply are not personally ready because they've never trusted Jesus. They've never entered into that, that commitment, that relational commitment uh, through trusting Him as Savior. So this morning, would you do that work? We pray to the glory of Christ. Amen.